Good day, everyone, and welcome to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. My name is March Twisdale, and my goal today is to inspire you, make you laugh a little bit, answer some of your publishing or creative questions, and introduce you to amazing writers and books. You are listening right now to either Voice of Vashon on 101.9 FM, KVSH, or you're live streaming the show at voiceofvashon.org, or maybe you're listening to my podcast at marchtwisdale.com. Either way, I'm super glad you are here for my interview today with Jannie Simner. Jannie, how are you today? I am good. How are you, March? I'm actually feeling great. It looks like all sun up here for a few days. I'm in the Seattle area, so I'm, I am looking forward to some vitamin D. We have no shortage of sun here. Yeah, so real quickly, can you go ahead and tell our audience a little bit about yourself and uh, who you are, what you do? Sure. I am Jenny Lee Simner. I live in Tucson, Arizona, where not only do we have plenty of sun, but we're actually watching that move towards summer after a really nice winter and spring and knowing that our season for getting cabin fever and not being outside as much as we want is approaching. I am the author of the post-apocalyptic Bones of Fairy trilogy, which is set in a world where after the war between fairies and humans, the plants have taken on, among other things, minds of their own, and they know how to bite and how to attack, which wasn't that far a leap living in Tucson, where we are surrounded by spiny plants. They are beautiful, but they also do know how to draw blood. (laughs) I've also written five other novels and a few dozen short stories and the script for a couple of video games. Yes, yeah, so um, it's really cool. You and I connected a couple months ago when I was also sharing the glories of the desert life down in the Mojave Desert in Southern California. And it's so funny what you just said. I think if I understood you correctly, you were alluding to the summer as that season when people are not outside as much as they want to be because it's uh, oppressively warm, I assume. Mm-hmm. It's you get up early so that you can make it outside by noon. If you have to be outside, you don't move very quickly. You take lots of water. I think we feel about summer the way a lot of the country feels about winter. Yeah, that's what, exactly. That's what <laughs> I was just thinking. Um, it's so, which is why the whole snowbird thing is really starting to make so much sense to me. I just, you know, so it was unexpected. My uncle had a stroke. He's doing really, really well. And I went down in October to help out and ended up thinking I'd be there for two or three weeks. Like I had a backpack when I flew down there, you know, like three pairs of socks, you know, two bottoms, a shirt and a coat. I mean, like, I thought nothing. Five months later, I came home. (laughs) (laughs) It's a beautiful part of the world. You know, even in summer, Mm-hmm. Even as we're respecting the heat and staying indoors more, I feel like it's still a beautiful part of the world. Okay, okay. So we have a list of things that we're going to touch upon today. Folks, you are really lucky um, to be listening in to this interview, and it's not because of me. I mean, I'm cool and everything, but Jannie has this. You are cool. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but Jannie's got this amazing list of things we're going to touch on, and so I'm I'm looking at it trying to decide where to start So you've got a lot of books, but we're talking specifically about your Bones of Fairy trilogy today, which I started reading down in the desert. And then thank you for sending me these, um, the next two in the series. 
you had a really interesting sort of like um, realization that these books needed to be written. And um, I thought maybe if you wanted to start off by reading that first chapter. That sounds good to me. The first chapter of this book is where the whole trilogy began for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I wrote it not knowing yet what was going to come next. But once I wrote it, I knew I needed to tell the rest of the story. I had a sister once. She was a beautiful baby, eyes silver as moonlight off the river at night. From the hour of her birth, she was long-limbed and graceful, fairy pale hair clear as glass from before, so pale you could almost see through to the soft skin beneath. My father was a sensible man. He set her out on the hillside that very night, though my mother wept and even old Jace argued against it. If the fairy folk want her, let them take her, father said. If not, the fault's theirs for not claiming one of their own. He left my sister, and he never looked back. I did. I crept out before dawn to see whether the fairies had really come. They hadn't but some wild creature had. One glance was all I could take. I turned and ran for home, telling no one where I'd been. We were lucky that time, I knew. I'd heard tales of a woman who bore a child with a voice high and sweet as a bird's song and with the sharp claws to match. No one questioned that baby's father when he set the child out to die far from our town far from where his wife lay dying, her insides torn and bleeding. Magic was never meant for our world, Father said, and of course I'd agreed, though the war had ended and the fairy folk returned to their own places before I was born. If only they had never stirred from those places. But it was no use thinking that way. Besides, I'd heard often enough that our town did better than most. We knew the rules. Don't touch any stone that glows with fairy light, or that light will burn you, fiercer than any fire. Don't venture out alone into the dark, or the darkness will swallow you whole. And cast out the magic born among you before it can turn on its parents. Towns had died for not understanding that much. My father was a sensible man. But the memory of my sister's bones, cracked and bloody in the moonlight, haunts me still. The question that comes to my mind is, um, where did that come from? And that is a good question that I've never been fully sure of the answer to. At the time I wrote that, actually back in the early to mid-90s, I was deeply seeped in a lot of, I was reading a lot of contemporary fantasy, a lot of, you know, elves and other mythical creatures in our world, types of books. But one day I just sat down and I wrote that opening. I just started writing, not sure where it was coming from. I got to the end of that opening And I like to say I was terrified, not because of where that scene ends, but because I had no idea what happened next. 
But I also knew once I had written that opening that I had to write the rest of the book to find out what happened next. And I just had to become good enough a writer to do the rest of the story justice. You know, there's all these different things on Twitter and other places, you know, um, contests and, and things. There's Pit Mad and other things like that. Well, one of them's called Rev Pit, and it just happened. And what's interesting about it is that, you know, you send out your query. And for folks out there, if you're, if you're not currently um, experiencing the life of a writer, and some of this should mostly make sense, but you're getting a little bit of a sort of a back view into um, what writers go through between that creative moment that Jannie just described, and ultimately you have a book in your hand. So you send in your query, you send in your first five pages, whatever, but they want you to have a synopsis written and have that in the, sort of in the wings. And if they're interested in picking up your story and maybe you're going to be a contest winner or whatever, they'll ask for the synopsis or they'll just ask for the full manuscript. And it's interesting, this woman came in and was talking about everything that has value to her as an agent or an editor when she looks at a synopsis. And essentially, her description was the best I'd ever seen ever. So I shared it, and I'm going to have to go find it again and, and ask her if I can write a blog post about how she discussed it or something. Because it's sort of like she said, that a synopsis is where you, you come up with the idea of what this, that story is then you have to go out and write it. And, and a good synopsis is going to include all these pieces that prove to you that the, that the fundamental bones, haha, no pun intended, of the story are um, actually, you know, that this, if they're in the synopsis, they will show up in the, in the novel or they can. So what I like about this first chapter, this idea that came to you, this concept, what makes it so powerful is that it basically promises us that the meat, the bones, again, pun not intended, <laughs> the meat, the bones, the, the depth that we need from a novel for it to be worth our eight hours of time to read it or whatever, um, this, this first chapter promises it's going to be there. That's what I love about this. It's, it's not an a first chapter that like introduces you to a character. No, this is like a promise of what will come. And it was sort of that for me too, except I didn't have the advantage yet of knowing what would come. Well, yes. But I knew that it would be worth, <laughs> that it would be worth the reading. What I actually did, you know, looking back is, yeah, I tried to write past that and I both couldn't figure it out, but I also felt like this was fairly early in my writing career, and I wasn't, mm -hmm. I just wasn't good enough to tell the rest of the story. So I said, okay, one day I'm going to tell this story. I put it aside, and as I worked on other things, every couple of years I'd pull it out again. Mm -hmm. And I would say, okay, am I ready to tell this story yet? And each time, you know, the answer would be, you know, I'd write a little more, and then I'd include, no, it's still not time, and I'd put it aside. Yeah. And then it was probably about eight or ten years after I first wrote that opening that I finally said, okay, let's do this. And even then, I had to do a lot of brute force pushing through a very messy first draft just mm -hmm. to get it down. But at some point, I hit the point where it's like, okay, I'm ready to find the rest of the story. Well, and, you know, a messy first draft, it's, it's interesting that you sort of even suggest that as if that's an odd thing. You know, I, I do want to throw that out there for um, 
I've learned in the beginning, I have the same feeling, you know, you, you want, if you're writing a paper in college, um, everyone knows that maybe there's the brainstorm phase where you're just scrabbling words on a piece of paper. But when you write your first draft, it might be called a rough draft, but it still needs to be fairly good. And I'm coming to realize that um, given the, the, the deep necessity for many, many revisions before um, a first draft turns into a published book, it's like sometimes you don't want to hem yourself in or slow yourself down by being overly critical of that first draft. You know, let it be messy. Just know that probably half of it's going to get edited out or changed. Who cares? Get it on the page. You know, let the creativity flow. So, um, and it's funny that it's funny that I'm in that like that like I put that note of apology there because I think in some ways I was back at the place of being that writer writing that book because since then I've totally embraced writing messy first drafts. I actually mm-hmm. love my messy first draft. <laughs> I actually I it takes me roughly five drafts to get to a finished book, and the first draft doesn't even resemble the final book. It's like the first draft, everything gets kind of thrown onto the page. I think the first draft in some ways sets the tone for the book, but it doesn't set anything else for me. The second draft, I'll get into the vicinity of the plot that I'm honing in on. (laughs) By the third or fourth draft, the language will begin to sound. And the characters will actually... You know, be and I'll doing it. know the characters, like, right. the, like real people, which they don't. What's interesting about this book is the first chapter changed only a little bit. Everything else was thoroughly messy and got thoroughly revised and right. re-revised. And... And, and, and on one hand, I think, I, I know for me, I have this, this, my, the fear. Fear is the wrong word, but it's the word I'm going to use. Intrepidation might be better. Um you know, and I have a little bit of a perfectionist streak in me, but it's not like I... Oh, hi. Good to meet you. <laughs> <I'm> another one. <laughs> it took me years to realize, but I am a perfectionist too. And, and it has slowed me down more than I like to admit. Exactly. And, and, but my thing is also pragmatism. And I was like, well, what's the point of writing something that's not going to have value later? You know, I, I want to, I don't want to write a whole bunch and then have to write a whole bunch again and write a whole bunch again. I was like, my hands, my neck, you know, my body will break down and I'll have all these, you know, hundreds of thousands of words that just have to get tossed. So, you know, there's a bit of a, of a, of, of that feeling. And then I realized that really it's just, you know, it's not like you're writing a first draft. It's more like you're writing exploratory drafts sometimes. Nice. Which makes it feel a little less like it's supposed to wind up everywhere, anywhere. Yeah. I'm just, Figuring out the terrain, figuring out what's there. Mm-hmm. One thing I do tell myself, I don't know if this is helpful for you, is I tell myself that none of those words are wasted. They're not on the page, but every word that I throw away still informs that final draft. Absolutely. In some mysterious way that's hard to, like, you know, I can't quantify it, but they're there still. And and so this is the last thing I think will because uh, we have all these other lovely things that are list to get to. But for, for everyone out there who's listening right now, who has written, is writing, is going to write, I had a supportive husband, but he doesn't read fiction at all, and he doesn't understand the industry at all. So sometimes you're going to have friends and family who just don't get it. And they'll say, look, why don't you just publish the thing? You know? <laughs> Or they'll say, look, look, just, just look, just finish it, you know, just start querying. 
And, and so I'm 10 years in to this, and I am actually going to start querying in the next month after 10 years. It's such a tricky balance, too, because it's like there's a point where it's time, mm-hmm. but then there's all this time when it's not time, <laughs> which sounds really funny now that I put it that way. No, but it makes so much it's sense. A, it's not as if the point when it's time is a point when it's perfect. Yeah, you can't, or I found that I cannot rush it, although I have tried many times and angsted many times, but ultimately that just doesn't work. And I can say once I got the book as good as I could possibly make it mm-hmm. and sent it out first querying agents, and then eventually we sold it to my editor who worked on the book. Even then, you know, I still got a revision letter saying, hey, you know, I love this book. Here are the things that can be better. Right. You know, that's going to happen no matter what. Yes. Well, and, and yes, um, absolutely. You know, one thing I will do is mention um, there's this great, great thing called, um, how do I call it? There's a website. It's, it's two women. Um, one's a writer. One's an agent. It's called the Manuscript Academy. And mm-hmm. um, and there there's a lot of people out there producing great content. But I have actually fallen in love with the Manuscript Academy. And um, after several months of exploring it for free through their podcast, I'm actually going to become a member because the, the content is just so upper scale quality and valuable and is informative in the most densely packed way. I'm just thrilled. So I'm just going to throw that out there as we're going to transition out of this for everyone out there who's in the world of exploring their own writing and whatnot. um, Check out the Manuscript Academy. And they do have a podcast with like hundreds of podcasts from several years. And you can listen to those for free, which is great. The information there alone is highly valuable and um and i and yes because as you say we could talk for the next 39 hours in a row probably about this topic and um and still have more to say so we're gonna move completely um sideways and we will come back to the book trilogy um once more during the interview but i want to move sideways because you have a background sort of in sci-fi and you've actually participated in sci-fi conventions that I've only ever heard of and not actually gone to. And I just wanted you, we've got people out there who probably love sci-fi, go to conventions. Just, I don't know anything about what they're like. Tell me a little bit about it and, um, and what your experiences were. It can be a great community. I mean, a very open community. No more perfect than any other community, of course. But I started... To back up, I've been reading science fiction and fantasy all my life, and I've been reading freely adult, young adult, you know, all of it. And in the early 90s, around the time that I started taking my writing seriously, I also started going to science fiction conventions, first in the Midwest. I lived in St. Louis for a little while. I went to college there, and then when I moved out to Tucson, I kept going to them and have traveled to some of them. And... It's a community that's very willing to, you know, talk about writing and talk to you, where people are very willing to talk to you about what they're doing. They're not the sort of conventions where you're going to go to a session that is, you know, here are the top 10 ways to finish your novel and here are the ways to pitch it. You know, the panels, the discussions are more about the work itself, about science fiction and fantasy. Mm -hmm. And there's also a lot of other things, you know, there's, media, there's 
movies, there's manga. It's all kind of gloriously tangled together. Right, right, right. In one right. place. What, what are those? It's um, just a lot of fun. So what, what are those other, the, there's those cons, something con that like are really popular and people dress up into, um, they dress up like Spock or whatever. Comic-Con, what, is that what that is? Comic-Con's one of them. Actually, Phoenix Comic-Con, I haven't been to San Diego Comic-Con yet, but Phoenix um, has a large Comic-Con. And Comic-Con that has, too many times. does it have and like a strong sci-fi one. connection? I know there's one that happens up here. Is it is it sci-fi connected? Is it sci-fi fantasy connected? It is. I think all of them are kind of a little bit of everything now. Mm-hmm. You know, in the beginning, they were pretty comic-focused. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also very film-focused, very movie-focused. And I'm pretty sure most of them now... I know Phoenix Comic Con, which is now called Phoenix Fan Fusion has a whole track just for writing and writers. I'm not surprised. Or did when I was last there. And did before the pandemic. I was going to say, I yeah. now I have, it's been a while since I've been to any of these, and I miss hanging out with other writers. Yeah, yeah. I don't even get to hang out with, you know, my group of local writers who we hit the coffee shop or used to hit the coffee shop once a week with our laptops. And well, hang out together. I, and I, I miss I, that whole community. Well, and I do really think that, I mean, one of the things people forget about the Spanish flu back uh, right after World War I, um, which did not have, we didn't even, antibiotics had not even been discovered yet. I think that the And mold, there were no Zoom checks. Yeah, no Zoom, right. But there were no, no, literally, just imagine the world without antibiotics. They certainly didn't I have ICUs. They didn't have, you know, any of this stuff. Um, I, plastic, I don't think, really existed. So everything was glass and probably, like, rubber. I mean, you know, so totally different world. And yet that pandemic was over in about two years. That's what our historical records show. I think about show. that, too. You know, and so... And I think about how I used to think we were somehow immune to history. <laughs> in a way, I mean, I wouldn't have put it that way, but I thought, you know, things are different now. And, no, we're going through pretty much the exact same process they went through them. I remember seeing, like, early on realizing it was about a two-year process to pull mm-hmm. out of that mm-hmm. in from the Spanish flu and yeah. thinking, well, I hope it's going to be less than a year for us. But, no, we're no. we're subject to the same forces still, for better or worse. We have some advantages. You know, it's interesting. In, in the Bones of Fairy books, there's um, the generation... The protagonist generation was born. There's a catastrophic war between yes, um, a ma- catastrophic magical war between humans and fairies. The protagonist was born after that, so she only knows the world how it is. Mm-hmm. But her parents and grandparents' generation, they keep remembering how things were before, right? And so they're always missing all the things we used to be able to do. There's a point where a character says to her, you know, at one point towards the end when. Things are going badly. You know, I wish I could just call 911. Oh, my gosh. I love that. Oh, okay. So remember I mentioned earlier that I have that piece of, um, it's a story arc based upon flash, flash fiction pieces? hmm Well, okay. Same concept. What I thought would be true is interesting. You, you're noticing how the, the older generations that remember are thinking back on that. I'm curious what you what you did in your story because I haven't gotten through all three of the books. For me, I have this feeling that 
the easiest generation or the generation that will find it easiest to adjust to change will be the children. And Oh, absolutely. Right? And so my, the ones, yeah. The, the adult generation, they're both, well, I mean, they have knowledge that I think, I don't know if it comes out in the books, but that is going to be valuable mm-hmm. and is valuable. There's one character who was an engineer and he's sitting there like stripping copper wires and making engines and getting generators running. And that's, that is important as well. Right. But a lot of what they know doesn't apply anymore. Mm-hmm. And they also have a lot more fear around. They know because they remember the war that magic destroyed the world. Mm-hmm. So they see it as something that they have to control, get rid of. Right. And the pro- my protagonist takes her a while to get there. But other children figure out more quickly that magic is a tool we have we're in this changed world and we need to use it we need to use any tool that we have at our disposal and And, that it's not even an entirely bad tool you know nothing is entirely you know good or bad you know it's not like the technology we lost was bad or evil but the magic that they have now is also not bad or evil well yeah it's it's all about you know how we use it the discussions of social media right now. You know, my husband will always say, there's nothing inherently wrong with social media. It can create really good things, but can also be really twisted, you know, into a really bad force. And he's like, but it's not the social media that's the problem, it's how it's used. I, But I, I think, in a way, there the, there's the basic knowledge that the older generation will have, and that obviously can be, like, super valuable, and the youth wouldn't have it. I think also emotionally, though, that's what I wanted to play with in my story, is that... Why is it that on planet Earth today, people can be so excited about sci-fi movies and um, new technology and the idea of change, you know, oh, AI is going to make things better. There, there, there'll be these whole ways in which the world changing is framed as this great, awesome, positive, it's taking us forward, we're evolving. But in the same way, if you approach people and say, hey, what if we like drive cars less often or maybe don't fly in airplanes as much or eat less seafood, whatever it is, in those situations, change is framed as a bad thing. And I've been sitting here trying to figure out why is it that sometimes we celebrate change and other times we avoid it like it's this horrible, terrible thing. And that's what I think goes on with the older people. They've gotten used to the way life is. So when a change comes, they're resistant. But younger people are actually, they're not formed yet. They're, they're just, so to them, when the change comes, they just move fluidly in that direction because it's just what their life moves to. And they adapt because they need to. I think even in yeah. science fiction, like the tech that's all shiny that everyone loves, Mm-hmm. it's not always the day-to-day stuff, you know, and and I think it's even shifting, like, how we approach that in science fiction. But, you know, it's easy to say, you know, oh, if we could, you know, live on the moon and have flying cars, life would be amazing, while we don't get, you know, we have open-heart surgery, we have antibiotics, we mm-hmm. have, and I'm as much a fan of living on the moon as anyone, I should say. <laughs> but it's easy to forget, like, the miraculous science around us because once it's around us it feels normal yeah you take it for granted yeah i mean we have video phones you know that seemed like a 
big deal back in old science. Well, that's what Captain story. Kirk. I mean, I'm always like, oh my gosh, I have a Captain Kirk. Boop beep. <laughs> Flip open their little. I mean, they only had flip phones. <laughs> but the resistance to change, I think it definitely comes out like now that, yeah, in our world, you know, kids are more willing to make changes. Sure. They're not than... formed yet. They're not stuck. There's a book. There's a um, middle grade, like an elementary school age series called Ivy and Bean, which yeah. is a non-fantasy slice of life. Mm-hmm. Very funny, very well-written series. But in one of the books, the characters learn about global warming. And they oh. are horrible. Their first reaction is, oh, well, we all need to do something. And they go running yeah. to the adults. And then they're like, you knew about this? Right. <laughs> <laughs> how, did you, how are you going through your lives, you know, just not doing anything. What's the word for it? The frog in the water, Uh in the pot. So you had talked about fantasy as metaphor. And I think that that's a little bit of, I mean, you know, that's what, what you're, what I think most fantasy and sci-fi writers in particular, those two genres in particular, all of them as well, actually, but those two seem to really, and then you look at like, um, you know, the Hunger Games, you know, some of the dystopians, there's, there's this way in which you can make it easier for people to be willing to discuss real issues, real problems, real, real um, aspects of how we get in our own way, mess things up. I think it's easier to discuss those things if it's in a fictional world than if you're talking about it right in front of our face happening in the real world. I think it definitely is. Fantasy gives us in a way, it gives us a distance. You know, we're talking about this world that's not real, and that's even compelling because it is magical, which does add something. But at the same time, from that distance, you get at all these important things about our world. I remember I used to, as a kid, I devoured science fiction, fantasy, coming-of-age stories. What were some of your favorite authors? Real quick, throw down... Madeline, Madeline Lengel right. was a big one. You know, the whole, um, the entire Wrinkle in Time, Wind in the Door, Swiftly Tilting Planet. Mm-hmm. Um, Robin McKinley, The Blue Sword, mm-hmm. amazing book. But all of them, you know, I loved reading about these misfit kids, because I was a misfit kid, who like, who eventually, you know, who persevered and triumphed, even though they didn't fit in. But if you had handed me a realistic book, about a kid going to school who didn't fit in and had to learn to make her way. I wouldn't have wanted that as a kid. You and were some living kids it. Would have. Yeah, you were living it. But I was living it. that. I didn't. But if you gave it to me with a fantasy novel with mm-hmm. a little bit of distance and with a little bit of adventure, mm-hmm. you know, I was totally there. Anne McCaffrey's and I, work literally. Oh yes, Harper I mean, Hall. Harper Hall trilogy. Oh yeah, mentally less. Oh yeah. I, I did all of them. Yeah. And and for me, I, I I moved a ton. I mean, like, I rarely went to the same school for more than a year. I moved in the middle of a school year, like, multiple times. And so for me, just, you know, you can you might be able to form, like, a, hi, I can sit and have lunch with you, friendship, but you're not going to actually have a real friend when, you know, you've only been there for three months and you're leaving in two months. So I found that the characters who were going through really hard times in her world in particular, they they were my go-to friends. And I would think to myself, well, if, if mentally can put up with those awful parents, that close-minded society, and then she can run off and, and, and 
deal with all this stuff, well, then I can get up and go to seventh grade. Yes, I always had this idea that I was going to have this triumphant story arc just like all of these characters did. Yeah. And that, yeah, that helped me get through. Well, and I know you and I are not alone. So many people, if you ask them, you know, what, what books, what characters helped you survive, you know, middle school or high school, I think almost everybody can spit out, you know, Yeah, books series. are, I mean, it sounds melodramatic to say books are lifesavers, but they totally are and in ways that we'll never know. Yeah. because you, know, you don't know everyone else's story. Yeah, yeah. So, so okay, yeah. so relevancy, um, you know, so in, it's yeah, like in both, they're relevant. In, yeah, in Bones, you know, we're dealing with, like, you know, war and conflict and, you know, the fairy folk and the humans, you know, basically was, like, mutual mass destruction. Mm-hmm. In a realistic novel, maybe, maybe not so much, or maybe for some readers, but for other readers. What is it, if you want to share with us a little bit, that might have triggered, you know, people and fairies to be so othered from one another that they were willing to choose mass self-destruction? You know, I think it was, I think it was actually not very different than in our world. You know, it was mm-hmm. politics, it was different goals, it was misunderstandings. I mean, the same, I actually think it wasn't any different than the things that get any two countries in our world to go to war, only we happen to have really um, deadly weapons on both sides. Mm-hmm. You know, the fairy folk with their magic, and, you know, the war was centered in the United States, so we know the sorts of weapons that we have. Right. And between those two things, you know, both worlds, plus, plus it is because, you know, the two worlds were kind of new to each other. And so it was easier for us to think of, you know, yeah, fairyland, whatever, that's not real. You know, and it's easy for the fairies to think of us as, oh, just those humans. You know, they've always been kind of beneath us. There actually is also, I don't want to get too spoilery, but in the later books, so there's that big picture, but then there's also a human story that some people think caused caused the war as well. You know, there's sort of the big picture politics, and then there's the small picture interactions between individual humans and fairies. Right. And I think those two things together got us to the war. What I really, um, I hope people will take a look. So so I've got the three books sitting here in front of me. And I'm really, you apparently traditionally publish them and then also indie publish them later. Am I getting that correct? That is correct. I um, They had a 10-year, I originally sold them to Random House. They had a fabulous 10-year run, run. They had a fabulous 10-year run at Random House. Which right. Is, excellent for a book series. I worked with some fabulous people who both made the books as the strongest books that they could be and got mm-hmm. them out into the world. Um, after 10 years, they, you know, what happened as they went, as they stopped selling, as other books came out, you know, mm-hmm. part of the kind of natural life cycle of books, we did get the rights back. And the way that works is it's in your contract, most contracts actually, that when a book is no longer selling large numbers of copies, you can request the rights back. Right. And then you have to the, the pay for them? Well, no, you don't pay because you own them. It's your copyright. Okay. You know, you've never stopped owning the books, but you've licensed the publisher to publish them. 
right. for a length of time until such point as they're no longer selling, basically. So you mm-hmm. request the rights back. They have six months to either return the rights or reprint a new edition. You know, either of those things would have been, you know, I'd be good with either of those. Oh, I you love know, that. Okay, I that's ask. good. Yeah. Yeah. So, and sometimes, I don't know, usually they revert the rights at that point, but it depends on the book. Well, and it doesn't, and the, I mean, um, if they if they decide to resubmit it to the world, then that's a win for the author. Anyways, basically what you're saying is, if you don't want to keep yeah. pushing this out there, I want to go ahead and push it on my own. So do you mind? Right. And I think in older times, that might have meant trying to resell them or do other things. You know, now we do have the option of self-publishing online. And I feel like it's not better or worse. It's just another way of reaching another audience. Right, right. So here's what I'm curious about. Is this book that I'm holding in my hands, is this identical or is it a completely different cover to um, the books that came out with the original traditional publishing house, Random House? It is a different cover, although it's somewhat in the spirit of the original cover. Mm-hmm. I thought about when it went, when they went out of print, I thought about asking for rights to the cover Mm. The, co- the cover art and the cover design is still owned by the publisher. I didn't create that. Right. And I could have asked for those rights. I don't know if they would have given them to me or not. But I mm-hmm. realized that if I tried to reproduce the covers that my publisher used, that mm-hmm. it, they would have looked like knockoffs. Oh. You know, they would not have looked as good right. as the original cover my publisher did. Plus, it had been 10 years, and mm-hmm. I think it couldn't hurt to give them a refresh and a new look. Yeah, exactly. A fresh so, new yeah. I like that. I like so it. I so I redesigned the covers. I loved the original covers. Yeah. And I love these covers too. So what I wanted to mention, I haven't seen the originals, but folks, these are yeah, no, these are really good quality books and that was that was just so nice to see cuz I have actually seen a wide variety of quality when it comes to um, indie presses usually are pretty darn good, but you know, self-publishing has a has a mix out there. And so when I when I got these um, I just was like, wow, really nice. It, it, for me, how a book feels in my hand matters, you know? And mm-hmm. it, it's not, it doesn't matter more than the words written between the covers, but it makes a difference. And so, folks, this is just, I don't know what paper you use on this cover, but it's not that shiny, slick stuff. Um, it's not a paperback, a dry paper. There's something solid and awesome about it. So, really, well done. I did try. <laughs> I Thank you. I did try the covers both ways. I tried them with the glossy cover and with the flat print. And the glossy cover, just for these covers, for whatever reason, made them look cheap. You know, I think for other books, mm-hmm. you know, it depends on the book and it the does. It does. look and feel. But, yeah, actually, it's funny. You talk about needing to, you know, wanting to hold and touch books. As you said that, I'm picking up my copy just <laughs> because of that tactile. Yeah. Isn't it nice? It's so nice. It is. It's really nice. So so it's a great book, folks. I'm looking here, and we are at, flipping to the back. Dun, 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 dun. Oh. Huh. You don't have page numbers. No, you do. Okay, I was, that was the. I do. That was the, no, that I was the, uh, what do you call it? Oh. The introduction to the next book. <laughs> I was that far at the back. So it <laughs> I is. Hope, I yeah, don't yeah, yeah. I need to do a reprint. <laughs> 279 pages. Um, but the, this is the other thing too, that's really nice is the font 
is, I mean, there's a million different fonts out there. So I would say this almost looks like one and a half rather than single. Um, and it's um, a nice, comfortably large It is one font. and a half. Ha! Look at me. It actually <laughs> is one and a half. Basically. There you right, go. Now I'm trying to write. I think it's actually 1.4. It's like a little bit less. Yeah, than yeah, one yeah, and yeah. A half. yeah. But it's so, close. Too. It's nice, and the font is. I mean, for me, for example, I am forty-eight. So a couple of years ago, I, I started like realizing my arms were needing to get longer and longer because I was putting things farther away mm-hmm. so I could read them. But this Here book, too. because of the font, I actually can have my elbows bent. Ha <laughs> ha! Still read. Oh, hey! <laughs> <laughs> I did do. I do think that like type typography is one of the overlooked aspects of book design. Oh, Everyone so knows important. the cover has to pull you in, but I do think there's a tendency to overlook I mean, it's the fact that the, yeah. the type matters. Totally. You spend a lot more time reading the pages than you do looking at the cover, so clearly uh-huh. it matters. And um, so let's see here. Thank you for sharing about that because I, I think a lot of writers are um, under the impression that once you know a traditional publishing house takes on their book that they'll you know, you hear horror stories, and you never know what are the real facts and details behind them. You've just got someone who has a grudge, they're frustrated, and they will tell a horror story. But you are telling a great story. No, I, I loved working with Random House. The books that I'm working on now, my plan is to first publish them traditionally if I can, mm-hmm. you know, for most of them. So, yeah, I think they're two different tools in the toolbox. Yeah, I like, I, I like for me as a new writer, meaning new to being published, I like um, going for traditional publishing first because some people see it as gatekeepers, but what I see it as is um, I see a lot of oh, people marketing. who... Well, well, no, 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 there's all that, but I see, I actually <laughs> yeah. know a lot of people who have had the money necessary to be able to self-publish and I feel like what happens is they get to revision number three and then they think oh you know the publishing world just doesn't get me they don't understand me you know so I'm going to self-publish when really they needed to take another year or two in order to improve their writing and get to the point where the experts in the field would want their work so to me I feel like they're the challenge they're challenging me to improve myself and it's true it, every single revision something's better so i mean at some point i'll have to stop revising right and actually just put it out there but i'm <laughs> well, getting these, better so there you go and these books i mean even the self-published editions they have benefits that carry over from the traditionally published i mean the self-published editions carry with them all sorts of advantages from the traditionally published editions. My editor did an amazing job working with me on editing all three books, making them so much stronger than they were. You know, that right. carries over. And then for marketing, you know, all the reviews they've already had, that carries over too. So both those things, I mean, the big thing is the editing. But both yes. editing and marketing, it is a little bit easier yeah. Because of the fact that they've been traditionally published. That said, I do know people who have gone straight to self-pub and done well with it. So mm-hmm. there's no one-size-fits-all. Oh, there's that, no yeah. one-size-fits-all for anything. Yep. There's definitely people out there who have really, you know, I find oftentimes if you're the more business-minded and um, you like to 
create content. A lot of the people who do very well in self-publishing do well because they also create, you know, um, a big YouTube following or, you know, they're always putting out videos and they're sharing what they know and, and that's brilliant and excellent. It's just for me, I really have only so much energy left over mm-hmm. after I take care of my kids or my farm or whatever. And so I, I just acknowledge I need to use my time to really focus on the writing and and not do a lot of the extraneous things. And I hope that the traditional pub, you know, traditional path will make that less necessary. Yeah. And so, the other thing is the self-pub path doesn't go away if you try the traditional path first. That's true. That's you know, very there's, true. You, can't, you can't always go from self-pub to traditional pub unless you do extraordinarily well, but you can always go from traditional pub to self-pub. Well, now that's an interesting thing, though, is apparently a lot of agents, or maybe it's actually publishing houses, are trolling around looking for the books that are doing well in the self-publishing world, and then they call up and they're like, hey, you're actually doing pretty good, so what do you think? Do you want to go traditional publishing now? You know, I mean, that's, that's what's interesting, too. I always wonder, because are those, unless they're really willing to push it, are those the books that it's in the author's benefit at that point to go traditional publishing? Well, it's a great question. I mean, question. they're rare. Yeah. But if you've managed to, if you've sold enough copies that, you know, you're getting that kind of notice from publishers, you know, if you're talking 100,000, 500,000 copies, mm-hmm. you know, at that point, Unless you're looking for someone to edit the books and make them stronger. Well, and the funny you know, thing what, is when... And they, might, they won't want to do that because the books have been successful as they are. Well, it's weird. It's like on one hand, I don't know if you've run into this, but when you're um, sending queries to agents, the general concept is, I don't want to hear about a book that has already been published. You know, they all, they're always like, nope, if it's already been published, then don't bring it to me. And yet the publishing world is apparently trolling around for successful books. I don't know. I don't know a lot about it, do- but it's interesting. I think they're doing less of that than it seems. I Maybe. think they're always happy when they find something, you know, try to do something with it. But I don't know that that's that common. I mean, obviously it happens. So this this book series, which you wrote quite a while ago, you know, it's got a little bit of a, I mean, it's in the, dystopian genre, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And you were saying that you have shifted over the past year um, into a little bit more humorous stuff because it hasn't felt really like in the middle of going through a quasi-dystopia pandemic moment. You're not sure you really want to be creatively generating that as well. So you have this thing about a cat that you were going to share with us. Yeah, I tried to do. I've been it's funny because I've been marketing this dark dystopic piece during a pandemic. Actually, we got the rights back like literally the week before everything shut down oh, or the my week goodness. after. Wow. Because what's funny, because usually it takes a few months for rights for the publisher to review and revert rights, but they were trying to, everyone was trying to get things done and off their desks because they right. knew things were shutting down. Right. So these came out right you know, right as the pandemic was really affecting us here. And at first, uh, you know, my reaction was, you know, do I want to even revisit these books during this dark time? Mm -hmm. 
And as oh, I reread yeah. them, I found them eerily relevant, mm-hmm. you know, because they are about survival and about getting through darkness and what you find on the other side. But it is true for my own writing new stuff. I have not been able to or not been in the place of wanting to write darker stuff. So I've been Mm -hmm. working on a lighter, both on a lighter work of fiction and working on some humor pieces. And one of them is one of them is about a cat or as cats like to call themselves now, feline remote learning assistants. (laughs) Because one thing I've noticed, of course, my daughter, like, Many children has been remote learning, at least for part of the year. She is back in person now. And everyone got to know each other's cats really well. Oh, I hear this because so much. Yes. All it, the kids yes. are in front of the screens. All their pets are there with them. The teachers are meeting their pets. They're meeting their teacher's pets. Right. As well. And the dogs have got to be happy because they're probably getting a lot more walks. And just think of all the neurotic dogs that used to chew on furniture because mom would leave them alone for 12 hours a day. Uh And now mom's at home. I mean, this this is, you know. If you're a cat or a dog, this is fabulous. Right. You know, it has issues. (laughs) You know, for the humans, it's rough. But for the cats, you know, my cat has, our cats have had to go to sitting with my husband where he's working at home. Because now that my daughter's back in school, but I did, I um, wrote a piece for an online publication called Frazzled, mm-hmm. called A Message from Your Child's Feline Remote Learning Assistant. Okay, so go for it, and then we're going to finish out the interview. Leave us with a little okay. bit of humor and something we can all relate to. Yeah, so this is A Message from Your Child's Feline Remote Learning Assistant. Hey there, small human. It's me, your cat. So how about this pandemic, huh? You have to admit, it's been pretty great. It feels like winter break, only it goes on forever. And your mom doesn't send you off to soccer camp the second week just so she can get some work done. The extra scratches and cuddles have been amazing. And that Chromebook that you brought home from school is the warmest sleeping spot ever. Still, like anything in life, it hasn't been quite perfect. As you no doubt know, I have recently joined the Union of Feline Remote Learning Assistants, and we have a few small requests for you. 24-7 keyboard access. Let's face it, thanks to your new Chromebook, I'm not getting the quality lap time I'm used to. That's okay, I can adapt, but only if you stop shoving me off the keyboard. I still need some place to sit that puts me squarely between you and whatever you are trying to do. <laughs> I, I am the cat, after all. Union rate for all appearances. Your friends love me. Your teacher loves me. Even that kid you hate because her birthday is the same day as yours, but her party was more popular, loves me. When I show up in a Google Meet, Everyone's so busy ooing and aahing, they totally forget about capitalizing proper nouns or regrouping to solve addition problems. That sort of skill doesn't come cheap. Here's my new rate sheet, broken down by cans of tuna fish per hour. Please also note that from now on, cat shall be considered a proper noun. A new couch. All this work means I need to keep my claws sharp. 
and your couch has run out of good scratching places. Please replace it with a new couch ASAP. Me time. I love being with you. I really do. But like any cat, I need my space. Specifically, my outdoor space. Please open the back screen door immediately. Telling me I am an indoor cat is no longer acceptable. This is a pandemic after all. And everyone says the more we can take our usual activities outside, the better. Unlimited catnip. Honestly, I don't think this requires any explanation. <laughs> Commitment. Last week, you were gone for two whole days. And don't think I didn't notice just because you snuck a day home in between them. If you want me to be your remote learning feline, I need to know you're all in. Your mom said something about hybrid learning last night. I don't know what that is, but I know I don't like it. So please make it stop immediately. And that's it. Just a few simple requests that I trust you, my favorite small human, to address in a timely manner. Oh, one more thing. Can you open your Chromebook for me? Because that kid with the same birthday as you isn't doing hybrid learning. And I think she wants to invite me to her next party. <gasps> so many people can relate to that right now. Oh, yeah, especially this year. You know, cats are the unsung dogs or the unsung heroes of remote learning. Right, right. Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm a forever optimist. And, you know, optimist. whatever helps us get through. It's books for, Books help us get through. right. Our pets help us get through. We help each other get through. Yeah. We find a way to all muddle through this together somehow. I mean, you know, it, 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 it's interesting that there's, you know, there's that old idea that I think we're still trying to shed that was around for so long and I think is really deeply rooted in actually patriarchy, but I'm not sure that I would always agree with that. It probably is open to discussion. But you know, there's this idea that everything is, that all living creatures on planet Earth are in competition. That was actually a believed scientific premise uh, for, a, for a long time in like Britain and stuff like that. It was just the belief was that the natural law was competition. And so we get this in our, in our modern, you know, economic viewpoint, you know, business viewpoint, whatever. Yeah, sure, network, whatever, but functionally, you're going to go out there and compete against all these other people. You'll compete for jobs. You'll compete for readers. You'll compete for this, for that, whatever it is. Um, but there's nothing on planet Earth that human beings do that doesn't actually result from cooperation. Even war happens because a whole bunch of people over here decide to cooperate together and a whole bunch of people over there decide to cooperate together. And then they decide through all their efforts of cooperation to go to war. They could also have cooperated to create a better world. I mean, so the, the funny thing is that when we ask ourselves, you know, why aren't we doing better? It's not because we innately can't. I think we actually are doing what we need to do, which is cooperate. We just choose the wrong goals sometimes. Definitely. I think the writing community, at least any writing community I've been part of, actually gets this. I have met... I'm not sure I've met any writers who think, oh, well, I don't want to hear about your book because that'll mess with my book doing well. You know, Aww. they get that we're all in this together. Yep. 
And if we think about it in terms of, you know, my book and your book and everyone competing, I mean, not that it isn't a market-driven field, but that we all also are working together. Great books just don't and, pull away from other great books. It's just the readers no. read more. <laughs> you know I mean? Yeah, no, readers want more books. You know, that's... And they want books that they fall in love with. I mean, a lot of times readers end up reading something that they're like, oh, it's a C plus, but, you know, right now there's nothing great from any of my favorite authors, so fine. You know, imagine how happy they would be if they, they found another A plus series that they could fall in love with. So, yeah. Or it is the book I need at this time. Yep. You know, and it doesn't have to be perfect, going back to perfectionism. Right. Yeah. One of the things I have learned as a writer is that, like, we don't fall in love with books because they don't make any mistakes. We fall in love with them because of the things that they do so very right. Yeah, I love that. For us. Yes. Yes, I love that. I love that. Thank you for saying that. Mm-hmm. And then someone reads a book, and you know, you'll hear back, you know, this thing you wrote about is what I'm going through right now. Yeah. And it's like, I didn't know what this person was going through right now but somehow we're all going through the same things and we all we get the lives of people we don't know Mm -hmm. because on some level there are those connections the human experience is i I think um oh yeah i have it actually (laughs) for people who are just now tuning in it's getting to the end of the show but um yeah i just posted about being so excited about being back in the studio and about our upcoming interview and the fact that one thing I hope people will take away from my show is that we are not as dissimilar as we may think we are. Jannie, I want to thank you so much for taking the time this morning to join me on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me to be here. You have been listening to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, produced here at the wonderful Sunrise Ridge studio of Voice of Vashon on Vashon Island. My name is March Twisdale. I am the producer and host of this show. And I uh, hope that you will also check it out as a podcast on my website, marchtwisdale.com, where you can find all previous shows also archived and readily available.